Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you are listening. Welcome to Project Restart. We are on episode nine, nearly in double figures. Very exciting. It feels like we've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, I, I suppose time doesn't really matter when uh, you're in lockdown or just coming out of lockdown. I'm going to be on holiday the next two weeks, which I'm very excited for. Uh, but you don't need to know that. I'm here with Nicola Kenton. Nicola, thank you so much for joining me again. How are you? I'm all good, thank you, Willie. Yeah, I'm jealous of your holiday, but I did go to the beach this week, so... Okay, beautiful. Whereabouts? Uh, we went to the Lincolnshire coast, so we went to Donanook, nice. um, which is a nature reserve, but there's literally nobody on the beach. Good choice. Good choice. And I will say, just to caveat, we, my, my partner and I are just going around the UK. We're not going to any foreign location where we could get quarantined um it just shows britain has so much to offer in terms of beautiful locations to go and visit and um it also has a lot to offer in terms of sport which is why we're still here still talking about sport and the slow restart that we're having in in various uh different sports um shock horror we've got an announcement actually a, a pretty shocking one that nicola um can reveal nicola what have you been doing this week well, in, in a twist of fate, I actually went to a football match, which, you know, hasn't happened for... I actually don't know the last time I went to a football match. <laughs> God! Nicola actually went to a football ground. So why, why did you go, Nicola? It was for a, quite an important cause, I believe. Yeah, I was doing some filming ahead of an announcement this week, uh, which was the GBC Holdings um, have put a multi-million pound, multi-year investment deal into non-league football. So um, it's at step seven of the games. So the Southern League, the National, uh, the Northern League and the Isthmian League, um, they have decided to, you know, support those leagues and promote grassroots, grassroots sports. That's very difficult to say when you haven't said it for a long time. Grassroots sports. And so, yeah, I went down to uh, St Ives Football Club in Cambridgeshire. Not that one. Any of, any of my Plymouthians listening... Not that Cornish one. Where where were you, Nick? In in Cambridgeshire, so not very far from where I am now. Um, and yeah, went to film at the club ahead of the announcement. They play in the Southern League. So yeah, we spoke to several people at the club, a few volunteers, as well as you know the commercial director, and then also spoke to the chairman of the Southern League about the initiative, and got to watch a game of football to boot afterwards, which was a a uh, game friendly against Ketching Town. They won 2 0, but it was just good to be ah. back at a game. Were there any fans allowed in? There were some fans allowed in. So, temperature checks were taken on your arrival at the ground, and then social distancing happened. There were sanitizers all around the ground. Refreshments were allowed in a socially distanced queue. Um, the substitutes were all socially distanced. St Ives does actually have kind of three stands where fans are able to sit. So in some of the stands, they were sat in their bubbles of, you know, a family of four and then a few seats and another group of people. Um, and then also the people standing around the edge of the pitch just as you get in non-league. So, yeah, I'd say there were about 200 people there. Um, they could have a maximum of 300 in the facility. That was their, their limit um, of what they were allowed in. But, yeah, people watching football and actually being at a game of football. Nice. And of course, the football season proper is starting up again 
this weekend. We've got some Carabao Cup fixtures and uh, WSL, is that this weekend as well? Yes, that is this weekend, yeah. The back after, you know, the season kind of ended with a damp squib um, because they weren't allowed to finish their season. It's the same feeling for Leagues 1 and 2, you know, fans, as we both are. So um, it's going to be great to see that we're going to get some proper football back and we can due to the power of the internet, live stream these matches, uh, which is going to be good for incomes for, for the clubs, I think. Absolutely, being able to watch those Carabao Cup matches, but also the WSL being available on the FA player and also broadcast deals in Germany and America as well. So Fantastic. Uh, just talking about fans, we actually had 2,500 Surrey members at the T20 Blast on Thursday night for the game between... Surrey and Hampshire, um, which actually ended up in a final over thriller. We had a bit of rain, as we always seem to do. But uh, yeah, I think it was a 12-over game, 11-over game, 11-over game. And uh, Surrey came out on top, which was their first win in any format since the prorogation of Parliament. So um, there you go. There's a little interesting stat for you there. Uh, can always provide one of them. Good to see that 2,500 fans seem to get in and out of the over without a hitch. Um, hoping that you know the government look at that and you know open it up quite quickly. Uh, in all honesty, uh, to a few more fans, you know we're hearing about thirty percent capacity at big stadiums in the Premier League, etc. Come October, we're not too far away from that. So fingers crossed. But uh, this episode, we are focusing on a slightly different sport, perhaps a sport that uh, doesn't get as much sort of column inches as you know the the football. And cricket, as we're talking about, we're actually going to focus on swimming um, with the fantastic Sharon Davies, who, of course, is a, an Olympic medalist herself. Um, quite, quite a, quite a coup for us to get Sharon on on the on the pod, um, especially as she's a Plymodian, which um, of course means that uh, she immediately goes up in in my expectations. Um, but uh, yeah, she um, competed and won a silver in the 1980 Olympics in Moscow, and two golds in Edmonton at the 1978 Commonwealth Games. Um, to any older listeners, I, I don't know how old that makes you feel, but uh, yeah, that was um, back in the 70s that she competed uh, for Great Britain. Great to have Ron Nicola, and there's, there was definitely some big topics that we tackled in, in this interview. Yeah, definitely. Even for younger viewers, Sharon is a mainstay on swimming coverage doing the poolside interviews, and has been doing those for several years as she said she's been to the olympics as an athlete and then as a broadcaster since um but yeah tackled everything through about pools in this country about the elites and what's been going on and her views on it all really i think we wanted to talk about swimming because of the fact that we were meant to be enjoying the paralympic games as we speak and the olympic games of course prior to that and um, also because swimming is one of those sports that um, you feel should be quite safe with chlorinated pools and uh, the ventilated air that you get um, inside swimming pools Um, but uh, as Sharon reveals in in the interview 25% are are still shut as we speak and we are currently speaking whilst the British Athletics Championships take place and yet uh, for elite level swimmers, they've not had a major competition since last year. It, it's a real interesting time because we have a very disparate outlook in, in the sporting 
world at the moment where we have, you know, the Premier League almost going about it as normal, um, other than fans not being allowed back in. And yet here we are, you know, swimming one of, you know, one of the country's great leisure activities uh, still on the starting blocks, if you like. Um, so I thought it was a really fascinating, enlightening interview for anyone who thinks, you know, okay, we're getting back to normal now. Actually, there's still some work to be done, you know, in in some specific uh, sports. So let's um, get it underway uh, because Sharon was a fantastic guest, had so much passion for her sport. So let's welcome to Project Restart the fantastic Sharon Davies. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Firstly, how's lockdown been for you? I mean, we have really have nothing, you know, to complain about. We had a garden. We had obviously all that sunshine at the beginning of lockdown. We we're out in the countryside. I became a grandma, but baby was very poorly with strep B, so that was quite stressful for my my eldest, my son. Um, and we couldn't do anything to help, so we felt very useless. You know, normally we'd be there and everybody would be rallying, but we couldn't. And then my sister got quite poorly as well um, with something else. And so other people around us were really struggling, but we were sort of sitting, you know, in our sunny garden at times enjoying the peace and quiet and getting out on a bike as much as possible and walking the dogs and feeling very sorry for people that were trapped in, in flats in the middle of London with, in, until they couldn't even go into parks. So, you know, I guess in the big scheme of things, we have nothing to complain about really. But I am worried now. I'm very worried about where we're going, where the economy's going, and of course, where sport is going. You know, swimming is probably one of the sports that's been the most difficult to get back. Obviously, people were able to go and swim open water um, if you just like to swim recreationally during the summer and you could find safe water to swim in. But with regards to swimming pools, when I mean, we still got 25% of swimming pools across England are not opened, and a lot of those aren't looking like they're going to open anytime soon. That's been the difficulty, I think, for a lot of recreational swimmers. Let's start there, because... Um, we, we've had different rules across England, Scotland, Wales, and yeah. there's been a lot of um, U-turns from governments, and you know there's been different sort of regulations popping up all over the place. It must be really frustrating when you know uh, for, for recreational swimmers, they're going to have their friends perhaps in different parts of the UK doing very different things to them, and they might be sat at home still, you know, without that pool, you know, their local pool being opened. Yeah, or, you know, if you lived at the seaside, then obviously you had to see where you could just go in and at least keep the feel for the water and get some physical activity. And one of the things that's so important about swimming is it's a non-weight-bearing activity. So a lot of people will not have access to fitness if they have arthritis or back injuries. You know, so swimming is a really vital exercise because it can look after so many people. And then you've got your Learn to Swim program as well. So we're talking about kids that need to be able to talk to swim so that they don't drown, which is also extremely important. Um, and that's obviously gone by the wayside as well. So, you know, you've got all the club swimmers, you've got the recreational swimmers, you've got the Learn to Swim program. And then at the very top, you've got the elite swimmers who are used to training, you know, 20, 25 hours a week. And lots of their rivals around the world have been able to carry on. I mean, I can be absolutely sure that the Russians and the Chinese have not stopped their training in any shape or form. Um, a lot of America has carried on, so people have been able to move to areas where they are able to swim, you know, if they're elite swimmers. Luckily for our elite swimmers, we have got the major university facilities back and open now, but um, club swimmers are finding it very difficult. I mean, my dad is a coach in North London, and, you know, he's had to divide his, his squad up into three. So where the kids would normally get, say, 10 sessions a week, they're only getting three. 
and then they can't do proper sessions because they have to have social distancing. He has to coach them in the middle of the pool. They often aren't yet getting the water time until very late. Um, parents aren't allowed in, although they're allowed to go down the pub together and allowed to go down the restaurant together, not allowed to be together in the swimming pool, so they're not allowed to be present. Um, there's lots of very strange rules. And like you said, it's very confusing, you know, around the country. Yeah, and obviously the reason we've got you on, you know, this week is because we, we would have been enjoying Tokyo and we would have been enjoying the mm-hmm. Olympics and, and Paralympic Games. Would you have been out there, Sharon? Would you have gone? Yeah, absolutely. I was due to be at my, um, what would that be, my 12th Olympic Games <laughs> on the trot. So, yes, I mean, I haven't missed one since 1976 when I was 13 years old. And I've, I've worked on, um, you know, the, the last seven or eight for the BBC and the first three that I did for as a competitor. So, yeah, really seriously missed it, you know, terribly. We get very excited every four years about the Olympics followed by the Paralympics. I'm sure that, that Tokyo would do an amazing job and let's hope that they can do an amazing job next year. But there's still a big question mark over it, you know, where we are absolutely not at a place where Japan is going to open the doors and let the world arrive on their doorstep. So, you know, at the moment, the way things are, are standing, I think that the games will go ahead. But I think there still is quite a big possibility it might be a spectator-less games. And how damaging for the sport would that be just in general, not just swimming, but athletics in general, you know, if it was a spectatorless games, you know, it's, it feels like the Olympics more than any other, the world gets together, right? And not to have that feeling, it's going to be really strange. Yeah, I think it will be, it would be sad and it would be sad for the athletes and it would sad, it would be, you know, particularly sad for their family and their friends because they're the ones that won't be able to get to share that moment with them live because they'll be traveling out and supporting them. And obviously Olympic supporters who love to be part of that environment. I still think you'd see the world coming together. I think the media would cover it, you know, incredibly well. If you think about Formula One recently, you know, we've not had the crazy screaming crowds, but we've still had the excitement of the actual um, race. You know, and, and so there's been lots of activities where the, the sport is still won through. So personally, I think it would be an absolute tragedy if the Olympics didn't go ahead. And I think it is a tragedy for some people because we've already, for example, in, you know, in, in English domain, seen people retire because they know they're not really got another year in them. So that's the great sadness. You know, those people that have spent four years preparing for Tokyo and don't have another year, especially when they can't get access to water time and they've missed, you know, four or five months of actual, of actual serious training. So that I think we'll see more of that around the world, we'll probably see more of it in the UK. And there will be some swimmers that will benefit from having another year. People like Freya Anderson, who was, you know, massively up and coming, even Duncan Scott, you know, these people are young. So therefore, you give them a benefit another year that puts them in a great place. You take someone like Alice Thomas, you know, that's 27, 28 years of old, and you give her another year, She's trying to swim 200 meters butterfly and that makes it incredibly difficult. So they are the ones that will be the real losers in this. You know, those people that just did not have another year's training and preparation and hard work in their bodies, basically. I was going to say, what would the impact be on our elite swimmers? As you said, Freya was flying at the end of last year yeah. um, on short course. And, you know, she's changed coach now. She's changed setup, and then all this has happened. Um, but for you know, swimmers like Charlotte Atkinson, who retired recently, um, there's been many who have just had to change their plans because you're not used to stretching a four-year cycle into a five-year cycle. How much do you think that will impact the British swimming team next year? Quite a bit. You know, you mentioned Charlotte. I think we've also had Jessica Fuller Love also announce her retirement as well fairly recently, and I think there may be two or three others. I think you've got you sort of 
your Hannah Miley's, your Amy Wilmot's, your Matt Litchfield's, your Ross Murdoch's, James Guy to a degree. You know, these guys have been around for a very, very long time. They've battered their bodies. They've worked incredibly hard and they've got to kind of start all over again and, and prepare. Now, I'm not writing any of them off because they're all very tough people, but it is much more difficult when you are towards the end of your swimming career to put another year in at this level. Whereas if you are the Tom Deans that, you know, the, the Freya Andersons, like you mentioned, Luke Greenbank, these are all people that will benefit from another year. Our men's four by two will probably benefit from another year. Duncan Scott will be in an even better place um, because he's got, you know, quite a few years in front of him. And, and Adam will be fine because Adam as a sprinter has got, you know, hopefully at least one more Olympic Games in him. So it's not going to make a great deal of difference to him, whether it was this year or it's next year. He will have the same same sort of challenge that everybody else around the world will have. It's those people that were just going to have their final swan song and I'm going to get Tokyo under their belt and then retire. And I feel very sorry for them. So I think it's quite difficult to predict how that's going to impact our team, but it definitely will have an impact. But it will have an impact on everybody's team. You know, there will be people like that all over the world that we're looking to compete in Tokyo and then retire. And yeah, as you said, we've seen some of the Americans training in pools outside and people over the world training where, yeah. uh, where for example, Adam obviously had a pool put in the back garden for resistance training <laughs> with the bungee. Um, yeah, so and ben, I think there was about 11 of them that got a swimming pool. Um, I remember speaking to Siobhan about it, Siobhan Marie O'Connor, and you know, she, she decided she didn't really want one, even though she was given the opportunity, because it's quite difficult to swim in what is a tiny pool. And actually what you're doing is you're swimming against the flow of water. So when we actually swim, we move the water. But when you're swimming against a flow of water, you're obviously getting the water on the back of your hands, if you can imagine that. So it's quite a different feeling. So although it's useful to have, it doesn't really replace actual swimming. You probably would still be better off trying to get into a river or the sea where you can move the water in the correct way. But then let's face it, if you get into the sea, you've got to deal with the waves and then you've got to change your stroke again. So it's incredibly technical to be able to swim in a pool that's very flat, that's kept at you know, 80 degrees, that's got absolute perfect chemical conditions in it. It's very, very you know, precise, and it's quite difficult to, to emulate that anywhere else. And I know talking to a few of the swimmers, they found it quite difficult to maintain their cardiovascular fitness because swimming is a very specific cardiovascular fitness. You can't replace it with rowing or running or cycling because it's, those things are all kind of, well, cycling slightly less, but most of them are all weight-bearing and create knee and hip issues. And some of us have got very flexible joints. So sometimes running can be quite bad for us because we end up going over our ankles and knees and all sorts of different things that, that cause us issues. So it's, it was quite hard for them to maintain that cardiovascular fitness that they would normally maintain in the water by knocking out, you know, 75,000 metres a week. Yeah, and I heard an interview with Tully Kearney, uh, one of our para swimmers, and she said she got a pool in her back garden purely because she can't do the land-based training that others are able yeah. to do, as you say. And how much do you think that might affect our Paralympic team in the fact that some have been able to get pools, others haven't? And as you say, it's, it's a completely different training compared to other sports and the way that it targets different parts of your body. Yeah, I mean, you have to, as an athlete, say that you've got the same challenges as everybody else. I'd like to think that we do as Great Britain, but there will be certain countries that will have would have handled covid better will have enabled their athletes to have better access to their facilities all the way through i mean take sweden for example which didn't close anything down so you know their athletes were training the whole time um 
So that there's definitely going to be, it's not going to be the same preparation. Everyone will not have had one year's same preparation to get to Tokyo. It will be a bit messy and a bit different and we'll have to wait and see what happens. But as, a, as a, an athlete, you have to say, well, I'm coming from the same place. You know, we're all, gonna, we're all in this together. I've got to regroup, work with my coaches and set up my program all over again to, to try to build that fitness back up. Our elite program now, I think is pretty good. You know, we have, um, as a country, tried to ring fence our elite athletes and make sure that we are getting them into the water. But it's, it's the club swimmers I feel really sorry for because they're the ones at the moment are really struggling because so many pools have been closing down. A lot of them are not fully manned, so they've got reduced hours. And then they're obviously having to spread their squads out so much that they can't get you know, the access to the number of, of sessions that they would normally get. And then we've got no competition program. One of the things that they are doing in America very well is that they've upped their competition program again. Um, and that is what makes you very rusty, not actually being able to, to race and compete. I, I was going to ask that, Sharon, because you know the lack of competition time yeah, we'd have to go back to Euro Swim last year, basically, that met at the end of last year. We've obviously got, as we speak, the British Athletics Championships currently taking place. And yet, for swimming, I mean, we've no. virtually nothing. No, well, we've got, and we've got nothing on the agenda at the moment. You know, no one is even talking about it. And the sad truth of it is we've got, you know, Sheffield, Ponds Forge, one of our most used, most raced in 50-metre pools, closed at the moment. It's not even open as is Plymouth, the Life Centre, which has, you know, goodness knows how many great athletes that have come out of, of down there, also closed for what they call repairs and refurbishment. So we've, we have got some serious challenges. Now you've got Bath, you've got Loughborough, you've got Stirling, um, 50 metre pools based at universities that have these elite programmes and they're all up and running. And you mentioned Freya Anderson. I live in Bath, so I obviously see the Bath guys quite often. And, and I think that Dave's setup is very good and he's got quite a few youngsters that have come in and, and the strong you know team's quite strong and I think that they will all be fine but it's it's yeah it is juggling you know I, I I have no crystal ball I cannot tell you how everybody around the world is going to deal with this I just know for sure that you know China and Russia will have made sure that their athletes had access the whole time to, the, to whatever facilities they needed somehow. And I think America would have also found ways for their elite athletes to be able to compete and train because they would have moved them if they'd had to, to where they could have been able to do it. Or they would have got them outdoors. You know, South Africa, for example, um, you know, I, I know that, that Chad has been able to train outdoors. But we don't have access to outdoor pools the same way that they do because we just don't have the weather and we don't have the, the, the numbers. Germany has a great deal, even though they have similar weather, of outdoor swimming pools, which they were allowed to go back to an awful lot earlier. So it's, it's you know, horses for courses and, and they're all gonna be, it's all going to be slightly different. And you can't let that play with your head, but it will affect people that probably come from the more distance events because they're the ones that struggle with, you know, giving up five months of their training preparation much more than someone that like ben proud who you know knocks out a 50 freestyle i mean how frustrating is that though when you when you can see other competitions going back to normal and you know what is the difference really with getting in a pool to getting on the track you know to me it doesn't make sense no absolutely and i agree you know a swimming pool is full of chlorine and things that kill all sorts of bugs and it always has done <laughs> and i do think it that it's, it is a real shame that we are not getting on top of this better. And I'm very, very disappointed in the government that they can come through and help the arts, that they can come through and have, you know, um, Eat Out, which is a great, great project, but they are doing nothing for the leisure sector. And the leisure sector is so important because if we have a healthier nation, 
they can fight this virus. They can stay healthier. They can stay the National Health Service. And they have a better, you know, better resources to stay fit and healthy. So I think it is, it's cutting off the nose, you'll spike the face to not help the leisure industry. I just don't really understand it at all. And, and then there's all the jobs that are in the leisure industry as well, which at the moment, you know, are absolutely sitting on the brink. Um, maybe a positive will come out of this, which is that local authorities need to take back ownership of their sports and leisure facilities. Because this, I think, is a, is a human right to supply the, you know, the, the facilities for people to do physical activity. And if it becomes just a commodity that uh, an independent company makes money out of and they're going to mothball it whilst they can furlough everybody because that's a better way for them to cover their costs and to open these facilities for the general public, then that's what we've seen happen. And I think maybe that's a lesson. You know, I don't know. Try to think of some positive that might come out of this. Yeah, financially speaking, at any level, club level and elite level, just how damaging has this period been for swimming? Incredibly damaging. Um, you know, when we were due to open um, our facilities, when we were allowed to open our facilities at the end of July, 40% of swimming pools across the country did not open, even though they were allowed to open. And we still have 25% of swimming pools not open. And many of those do not even have an opening day penciled in. 25%. You know, places like Oxford, you know, and Bristol, you know, with well-used facilities are... are just have one facility open in a, in a, in a big city um, and people have to book you know weeks in advance to try and get a, a session it's not through lack of wanting to do it it's just through lack of wanting to employ people um, to to run you know all of the facilities and of course it is difficult when you have got such social distancing you know people are, are there's less people in the pool they're not allowed to to use the showers they have to come hopefully changed and then leave straight away afterwards you know, there are lots of rules in place to try and protect everybody, which makes total sense. But I still think that we are, we're making it much more difficult than, than we need to for swimming. In terms of the elite funding, obviously the ISL was so yeah. successful last year. And yeah. they a coronavirus support fund from actually this month until July next year to kind of help those athletes yes. and those teams. Um, what do you think of that initiative and just what the ISL has done for the sport in the past year? Yeah, really good question, actually. ISL was, was amazing. You know, last year we saw it happen around the world. For people that don't understand what it is, an independent person who's come in and decided that they want to try to take on FINA, which is our swimming body, which haven't always been the most progressive and don't always make the best decisions for the swimmers, but often make the best decisions for themselves. And this is an organization that wants to put the swimmers first and center. And they want to make them more professional. They want to pay them. They want to create a kind of Grand Prix circuit like we see in track and field. And this worked really well last year. You know, we had fantastic um, crowds in London. Uh, we had London Raw, you know, we had teams in America. And these are teams that they put together from people all over the place. Although it's London Raw, it's got people from all over Europe in it and some Australians were in it. And I think Australia have got their own teams that they're creating for this year. And a lot of them train out in Turkey. And the guy that set all this up is Ukrainian, he's based out there. and. I mean, I think, again, he's put his hand in his pocket to try and support swimming and to try and support swimmers, you know, and, and all we can ever do is say thank you. And hopefully he will start to get the ball rolling with competitions where he knows he can do it. And then the swimmers will migrate to it. But it's going to be quite a tough one, isn't it? Imagine you're a swimmer in Scotland. 
you know, that, um, that's doing your training and working really, really hard and you're looking towards Tokyo and you're knocking out your yardage and doing your winter work. And then you've got to try to get some competitions in. But one of those competitions might be in a country which your Scottish government turn around and put in quarantine the day after you get out there. And so then the moment you get home, you're then supposed to go into two weeks quarantine and two weeks where you can't get back in the pool again. So you've got all these huge questions that you're trying to juggle at the moment, you know, and everything's a bit of a moving feast. I think that's the problem. But I think ISL is nothing but positive. And I think it's going to hopefully keep FINA in check a little bit more. And it's hopefully going to help the swimmers to be more independent, uh, more personally successful, you know, and, and make sport, make swimming a little bit more razzmatazz because that's what they did. You know, they created it in a really fantastic way for television and, and particularly for the actual spectator audience. I mean, it was really good fun to be down there in London at the Olympic pool. You know, and they had a DJ and lights and, and lots of very, very fast swimming. It's not, it's not sustainable because there is so much competitive swimming. It doesn't give them an opportunity to knock away the training. So I think there may be a bit of a collide between the sprinters that can get away with doing that and the sort of 200 and 400 people and above who really can't interrupt their training quite that much, particularly when they've only now got a very small block to get ready for, for next July. You know, as far as our heads are concerned now, we've had, we haven't had a four-year build-up. We've actually got a 10-month build-up, which is massively different. How would that affect, you know, training? Why is it different just from a, a swimming person's novice? You know, I'm not, not really up to my swimming. You know, I've never done 400 metres in a pool, Sharon, but... It hurts. <laughs> yeah. Why, why is the training so different? And why does it allow sprinters, say that the ISL go to the Gold Coast and, and, and host a, a sort of two to four week period there? Why would the sprinters... And that would be great. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm all for that. And I think that's really fantastic. You know, and, and if they pick places like the Gold Coast, I mean, what you don't want is for them to be there to be an outbreak all of a sudden in the Gold Coast. And uh, a very vigilant Australian government, which is absolutely fine, decides like Melbourne, they're going to lock the city down. And then everybody can't do anything. So it is still a slightly moving feast. And I do think everyone is slightly safer staying close to home with what they know. But yeah, absolutely. You know, getting a great block of six week work in the middle of winter in the sunshine and some racing in is a really, really big positive, providing you're prepared to take that, that hopefully small risk that something won't happen whilst you're there. And you're going to have to be under the laws of that country, you know, when you get there. That's, that's the difficulty. So if you think about comparing swimming with, say, track and field, if you're Lynn for Christie and you're preparing to do 100 metres, you do an awful lot of explosive work and a tremendous amount of work in the gym. If you're Paula Radcliffe and you're about to do the London Marathon, you're not going to be doing the same type of work. And so that's the, slight, you know, the similar sort of difference between someone that's going to say some of 400 IM, individual medley, versus someone that's going to knock out 100 freestyle. You can get away with doing an awful lot more work on the land and in the gym and a lot more explosive activity. And you're kind of 90% natural, 10% trained. You've got to have those fast twitch fibers there. Whereas someone who's much more of an endurance event, you are 90% trained and 10% there, you know, because that is something which just comes from relentless work of having to do, um, you know, raise those red blood cell counts and get that oxygen around that body in a very different way versus anaerobic versus, you know, aerobic kind of activity. And that, that does make your training sort of intensity and volume different. We've spoken a little bit about, you know, the fact that we would be watching Tokyo, you'd be in Tokyo right now. There was a really nice um, video put on British Swimming's Twitter um, a couple of weeks ago I don't know whether you saw it Sharon but it was sort of 
uh, You Can't Mask Our Smiles campaign. And they were, yeah. they revealed their, their, their smiles underneath their mask. And it was sort of a bit of a solidarity campaign, I suppose, to say, look, this has been a, a terrible period for everyone. But yeah. we're still here. We're still training. We're still competing. We're still smiling as best we can. You know, how important is it that we see that sort of connection, you know, from British swimming to you know, swimming fans and the general public to say, you know, we're, we're still here and knocking around and we won't be going away anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the positives that came out of lockdown was the number of Zoom meetings that swimmers had with swimming clubs. So I think I must have done five or six, you know, and if I did five or six, imagine how many Adam was asked to do. Um, you know, I know Jazz did a load. We did some lovely things with Swim England where they got Siobhan Maria Connor and myself to talk IM. And then we've got... Um, I think we got Adrian to talk to, you know, to, we got breaststrokers together and butterfly swimmers and medley swimmers together from past and present to actually chat together, you know, so they had a, with Adam and they did their thing about then and now. And it was really good. And then that was put out to the whole swimming community. So I think there was this lovely interaction between club swimmers and internationals with, with Zoom chats and, and information and coaches and just trying to keep connectivity and keep people's spirits up and keep them inspired, you know, through that, which was really all that we could do. And that's been a very, that's been a nice positive. But I think now everybody is sort of focused again on trying to look after themselves. We're not in lockdown anymore. We're in this kind of strange middle territory where we're trying to get back to normal, but it's not quite there. Um, and you know what? Time is ticking. I mean, I find it just crazy that we're in September already. You know, it just absolutely disappears, doesn't it, really, on us. So there's a, a big focus, I think, going into winter to try to get that cardiovascular fitness back in again. English Swimming has also come up with this English Swimming family as well, because we need, they're, they're lobbying the government all the time to not forget swimming and not forget the leisure industry. And so they're now asking people to join this, this swimming family and to donate between £1.25, I think it is, and £5 a month. And then they're using this money to lobby and to support, to support clubs, to support coaches, to, to get pools open. You know, it's, it's, if so, if you are a swimmer, swimming lover, then that's really worth looking into as well. And how, you know, how you can personally help swimming by maybe becoming part of the swimming family. Oh, great. Um, just one final question, Sharon, really, before we go. We ask everyone who comes on, on the podcast this because we all love our individual sports and we're also invested in it. Um, yes. This has been the perfect time to sort of take a pause and reflect inwardly on, on what our sports do well and what our sports need to improve on so if there was one thing that you could say to FINA the governing bodies um, we need to change this about swimming what would it be <laughs> I don't think you've got a long enough program for me to have a go at FINA to be honest with you <laughs> I mean you know they were one of the useless organizations at the last Olympic Games when the IOC passed the buck to, to all of the associations you know with regards to the Russians and and that whole issue we have with, with um, state-run doping programs, who just allowed Russians that have been caught twice before to get back in the water and compete. And they're doing exactly the same now. You know, I have so little regard, really, with, to the, for the IOC and for FINA for trying to keep our sport clean, for trying to support clean athletes. You know, we saw, saw all of the situation with the World Championships with Dun, Duncan with Sun Yang, and he should never have been allowed to compete, you know, and take medals away from people when everybody knew what he'd already done. At least they should have been. A, got it sorted out before or B just said unfortunately you're going to have to serve you know a suspension until this is dealt with they're not even going to reissue medals you know even though now the, the man's been given an eight-year ban it's just absolutely crackers so I would love to see 
FINA and the IOC put the athletes front and centre instead of it being about management and hospitality and advertising and money. And, and I would love to see the ISL be successful and, you know, raise the game with making it more of a spectator sport. When I was competing back in the 70s and the 80s, British swimming used to be on the television five or six times a year. And people could name half a dozen swimmers. Apart from the Olympics and maybe the Commonwealth Games, I think the British general public just don't see enough of swimming. So obviously we've got Olympic year next year, but 2022 is going to be absolutely crazy. Because what's happened because of the Olympics is everything's been pushed into 2022. So we've got the World Athletic Championships, the World Swimming Championships, we've got the European Games and the Commonwealth Games. So it's going to be a you know, crazy year. And hopefully we'll have a lot more swimming on the television. So higher profile and, um, and give the, the just you know, desserts for the swimmers who, are, who work so incredibly hard. I mean, most people don't realise that these athletes are training twice a day in the swimming pool and once a day in the gym, you know, anywhere between four and six hours a day, six days a week. It's, it's quite monotonous and, and very hard work. Yeah, definitely. And how do you think that packed schedule is going to affect um, performances, do you think? They're going to have to make choices, I think. You know, I think that's the sad truth of it because obviously both athletes and swimmers, and I'm not, I don't know about cycling and rowing and, and all the other sports, but I do know about those two sports in particular. You know, to have three major events literally one month after the, after the next, it's going to be crazy, really. And, and I just don't know how they're going to do that. And some of them will just decide that they're going to miss certain ones, which will be a real shame, um, particularly for something like the Home Commonwealth Games, which are going to be in obviously in Birmingham, and I would hate to see that not properly supported. We've got a European Games, which is only the second time that it's happened, and it's a really successful idea where we bring all the sports together and have the European Championships together. We did it in Glasgow, but the athletes were still, I think, in, where were they? Were they Munich or somewhere? Like, I don't know where they were. Where they were, they were away somewhere, weren't they racing? But they couldn't change their, their venue to be with us in Glasgow. But this time we were all going to be together. And obviously the World Championships have been postponed for, for both, you know, both sports. So it's going to be just really, really busy. But hopefully as, as spectators, we're going to love it. Because it just means it's going to be all over the television all the time. And I'm just going to be going from one hotel room to the next. <laughs> so, and with my microphone. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. But it's going to be a tough challenge for the athletes. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like me and Nicola have already spoken about this. As sports journalists, we're just going to be like wall to wall, I think, in terms of every yeah. sport that we could possibly want to wish to come on our tellies, we're going to be watching or reporting on. So it's going to be... We've missed our sport, haven't we? You know, we've, we've actually realised how important it is, you know, and, and so we're desperate to get it back. And maybe when it comes back, we just need to cherish it a bit better. Thank you so much to Sharon Davies, one of Plymouth's finest, it's got to be said, one of Plymouth's finest, uh, not just athletes, but uh, famous people in general. Great to have her on. And um, I I thought she was very impassioned about um, her sport, which I suppose you expect. But um, it was really interesting to to find out how British swimming is, is falling behind in terms of at elite level, you know, Sharon's saying she expects the Americans to be, you know, training that the Russians and the Chinese probably didn't stop and that Chad Lacloss, you know, from South Africa has been training outdoors. I'm a bit concerned, really, that um, swimming, which has been such a strong sport for us, you know, for as long as I can remember in the Olympics, you know, we're going to fall behind a little bit come 2021. Yeah, it's one of those things where 
as Sharon mentioned, the climate in this country does not necessarily suit a Lido uh, kind of pool, which are, you know, commonplace across most of the rest of the world. Um, Australia, America, even Europe, loads of uh, outdoor Lidos. And as he, uh, she said, Chad, um, if you've ever seen his documentary that he did, literally trains in outdoor pools all the time. Finds it very strange when he trains indoors because it's not something that he does. But yeah, to have, you know, those major hubs at Bath, Loughborough and Stirling open in this, in the UK, and obviously um, those who are allowed in at Cardiff also. They're the four major hubs across the UK, but there's definitely been a delay on, you know, when they could get in there, how many people could get in there. As you said, all the rules have to be followed and other countries will have swum more. They just will have. They Once you've not swum for a while, having done it before, gone through months of not swimming and getting back into a pool, it does feel a little bit like treacle. You don't, you get in and you just can't swim. Uh, how you used to and it's because as as she said the weight bearing of other sports you're weightless in the pool you float a lot of the time and there's not as much you know slack or on your muscles and on your joints which is why it's so good for some people but that's also the reason why it's so difficult when you have such a break from being in the pool to going back in that you have to be in the pool a lot of the time because otherwise your training just disappears your base completely disappears and you have to start off again in this country you know we have an elite program all all across we should have medals in multiple different events in Tokyo looking at it but normally we have a surprise or two will those surprise or two will they actually appear because of this truncated period that they've got for training will someone who normally comes up to the junior ranks and bursts onto the senior olympics will that happen next year I don't know if it will will it just be those who this is their second Olympics and, you know, they're reaching their peak of their career. Mm. Will it be those guys instead of a youngster coming up? I was really surprised to hear that um, 25% of pools across the UK are still shut. And as I raised in the interview, to me, there's no difference between getting in a pool, you know, especially if you're in a lane by yourself and, you know, getting on, getting on the track. Um, you know, indoors or outdoors, we've got gyms open across the country. So I don't really see why uh, swimming pools are, are, are any more dangerous for this coronavirus. You, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? And and do you, do you think that's going to end up? We're going to end up missing a, a a small generation of of swimmers because you know their their passion has has been taken away from from them for for such a, a long period of time. Yeah, as has been pointed out, obviously the pools are all chlorinated. They're cleaned constantly um yes they have systems in which the same water gets through but it goes through a cleaning process and then comes back through again same with the ventilated air i think that's one of the main issues that's been said as to why this has happened is because of you know the air conditioning type thing that is needed in the pool environment and obviously that will be recycled so it has to be cleaned and if people are speaking in that that's why you're reducing the amount of you know adults on poolside people spectating etc as Sharon said parents not being allowed to watch in the pool and I think that's one of the reasons for that but it it does seem a bit strange that it took such a long time to get these facilities open that that gyms and other things were allowed to open at the beginning of July and then it moved to outdoor pools and then indoor pools it took a whole another month in England anyway for that to happen in Scotland they were they're only just opening (laughs) they haven't been open the whole time 
apart from Sterling, where the elite swimmers are. At club swimming, elite swimming, you're not in a lane by yourself. Obviously, you're normally, I don't know, five, six, sometimes 10 people, if it was a busy club session, in that lane. And obviously, that has been significantly reduced, as Sharon said, with her dad in North London, splitting the kids up into different squads, different sessions, reducing the pool time um, to try and, you know, get all these kids back in the pool. But I do, I do worry that a generation will miss out that normally you see swimming on the TV at the Olympics. There's a little uptake as there is in many sports across and then people go and swim, but that hasn't happened. And as you said, 25% of the pool's still being closed, one of which is Ponds Forge, which has been used for many, many years for competitions, whether that's Bucks meets British Championships. It's been used for such a long time. It's a 50-metre pool, the main pool in Sheffield, and there aren't that many in this country because it's one of the only competition pools. And for it to not be open and not serve, for example, the Sheffield Swimming Club who use it, the Sheffield Diving Club that use it, the local universities that use it, the local schools that use it, a lot of people use that hub. It's a big building with a lot of different leisure facilities in it that just aren't being used at all yeah. um, because it remains closed. And you do wonder whether... Sheffield Swimming Club, for example, are they going to go through a period where they are going to massively struggle even more than they are now with those kids who, you know, would be eight or nine years old and suddenly decide from lessons that they want to be a swimmer and join a club? And are those kids going to join now? No, because there's no pool to swim at. And that will be the thing that gets missed out the most. Absolutely. Uh, Let's focus on some positives before we move on to... um... Sharon's quite vociferous um, attack on uh, FINA and the governing bodies in swimming, which I suppose I'm not surprised to hear that she you know, has strong views on that, especially given the, the records of, of some swimmers, you know, Sun Yang being the most prominent of those. It was really nice to hear her sort of talking about some of the benefits that might come out of coronavirus in terms of the, the schedules that we're actually going to be able to to be able to watch, hopefully, you know, in the next couple of years with uh, that sort of climax in, in Birmingham in, in the Commonwealth Games in 2022. And then also talking about the financial aspect of swimming and that she hopes that local authorities can actually take back some control of um, their local facilities. Just your opinion, really, Nicola, on, on those two things, because actually, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom in, in, in this period you know, of life for everyone. But I, I think coronavirus needs to be seen as an opportunity as well to, to correct things and, and make things right. What, you know, how, do you, how did you feel when you were listening to, to Sharon talk about those two topics? Yeah, for sure, with the um, major competitions all kind of coming together at once, it, it's something that doesn't happen because, as you say, there's normally an Olympic year which has the Europeans in it and then it's a World Championships year and then it's a Commonwealth year with a Europeans in it and then a World Championships year and they're all going to come very close together. And so there will be swimming everywhere when there has been none for such a long time. <laughs> I think it will also give a chance for youngsters to come through those competitions. As Sharon was saying, people are going to have to pick and choose which competitions they want to go to, whether that's Commonwealth Games, whether that's Europeans, whether that's the World Championships. And I think it gives an opportunity for some of those young guns coming through to actually experience a competition at that level, which they might not have got the chance to. 
purely because there's so many close together. So I think that that can only be a good thing for the sport because it means you'll see emerging stars before the Olympics and then they'll still have another two years to go until you get to the hopefully the next Olympics in Paris. The point on the local authorities and local leisure centres, for me here where I am, the local authority has taken over the local leisure centres because otherwise they would not have been opened and they decided there's been back and forth over the ownership of there's three centres. So the Pemberton Centre, which is our local gym facility, which does a lot of classes, etc. Then there's the local pool and then there's another pool and gym together in the same building. So those three centres, they are run by the local authority and they are now owned by the local authority so that they could get them open. So absolutely, I completely agree that if you're putting all that effort into helping the health of the country, you need to give a pot of money to the local authorities to put into their health and social care budgets so that they can actually help these facilities to run and maybe, you know, be able to reduce the price of memberships so that people can actually use the facilities that are on their doorstep. Yeah, I suppose the dichotomy in that is finances are tight for everyone, you know, not just not just the, the paying public, but local authorities and, you know, at a government level, they've been giving out billions of pounds during this pandemic. So um, we can't magic it from thin air. We can't expect people to be flocking back and spending money, you know, in every sector. And I totally get why Sharon was annoyed that the government had sort of piled money into the arts and not into leisure because, you know, that's where her passion is. But being a guy who loves sport and loves theatre, you know, I kind of feel as if, you know, without a government support, theatres would have would have just gone gone to the wall. I know you do have very rich benefactors in Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber who, you know, would help out um, as well. But I feel like sport is in a better position, perhaps. I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, it'd be an interesting debate to have with people. But I certainly feel as if, you know, we can't expect people to come, you know, flooding back. And it's just going to, we're just going to have to almost hibernate for a period, you know, manage it very kind of carefully. And everyone's going to have to count their pennies, you know, as we go. And I, I just hope that we can protect as much as we can. And, um, you know, we do have some good facilities in this country, some excellent facilities in this country. But the fact that they're not even open yet, that's that's the biggest worry for me um, because the longer they stay closed, the harder they become to open, basically. Uh, but just finally on FINA and uh, what what Sharon said when I asked what she'd change about the the sport. Obviously, she wants athletes front and centre naturally. You know, she's she she's been an athlete herself. But what what do you make of you know this constant problem? And I think it's a topic that we'll talk about for our entire careers as journalists that you know the the problem with doping in, in athletics in general not just swimming and and what do you feel um the IOC can do better to to sort of uh, manage it yeah the athlete versus fina problem has been a problem for i don't know how many years and it will continue to be a problem it's just been in the last few years where the athletes have really taken a stand against FINA and tried to do something about it and voiced their concerns. And that is why the ISL, the International Swimming League, that's where that came from, 
um, as Sharon said, it, to help the professionalism and put the athletes front, and that that's what it's done. And that came about because of how the athletes felt that, you know, the treatment that FINA were giving them. And in terms of doping, yeah, at Rio, swimming was one of those sports that allowed Russians to compete um, even if they had had a ban. So one of those swimmers, for example, is Yulia Efimova. Um, she'd had a ban, but she was allowed to compete in Rio, won medals in Rio. Obviously, there were some quite outspoken things that were said at the time from American Lily King, uh, Brick Chloe Cutton, who both came out, you know, Chloe came fourth in the 200-metre final and Efimova got a medal. So afterwards, there was a slight reaction. And it's one of those where kind of expected it to happen <laughs> you, you don't expect a lot from from um fina as as sharon said the ioc kind of made the decision to give it to the individual governing bodies of the sport and that is exactly what happened and they decided that some of their biggest stars were there so they needed to be there it's the perception of what do you do with those people who have served doping bans it's supposed to be a doping ban is four years but at the minute you know we've seen them reduced to two years reduced to six months backdated there's all the different options that happen and then so many cases get taken to the core of arbitration for sport because that's exactly what happened with son's case and there therefore he got to swim at the world championships because of that and it's just a back and forth. I don't know if we're ever going to solve the problem because I feel like there will always be doping in sport. You cannot get rid of it because it'll just continue to evolve. But it's how people are able to keep on top of the processes and keep on top of the systems to try and eliminate it as best as they can. And I just don't think FINA necessarily have done that thus far in the past 10 years or so. It's been a bit hit and miss over the the doping bans and what exactly has happened in swimming itself the fact that our british athletes can compete at such a high level on an uneven playing field is testament to everyone involved in sport you know going down to the grassroots and people that get the likes of a adam Peaty excited about swimming at a young age to you know the club uh, coaches right through to your elite level coaches and UK sport and uh, everyone that sort of contributes towards you know an Olympic um, team and um, it's been great to see our successes in London and Rio and I hope you know despite the fact funding has been cut you know we we do see a successful Olympics in, in Tokyo because I know how enthralled the great british public is when an olympics is on the calendar and um it's been a really strange summer because 2020 was meant to be this incredible summer of sport and yet we've sort of not been able to have it um you know and hopefully you know by pushing it back it's just gonna allow us to really get our teeth into some real meaty action in in 2021 and 2022 but uh we've got all that to look forward to hopefully by then our podcast will be reflecting on some much uh bigger lighter topics and actually talking about fans being in in stadiums again and uh watching their favorite sports but nicola thank you so much for joining me uh once again no problem thank you and guys please don't forget to comment uh subscribe tell your friends 
uh, we really appreciate um, just any of you guys listening, uh, where, wherever you are in the world. It, it, you know, it's just been a little sort of passion project for, for us and uh, we've really enjoyed doing it um, over lockdown. It's kept us sane, to be honest. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot to us and I uh, hope you can tune in next episode where we'll have even more from the world of sport because, you know, as the weeks roll by, we are getting there. Uh, we're getting some more sport to, to tuck into and um, really enjoyed sort of speaking to different sports stars who are at different stages, I suppose, with their respective sports in terms of the, the restart and getting their sports back to action. But until next time, guys, take care and see you soon.